You're tapped in to an X-Men shortcast for the black queer perspective. 10 minutes of the unapologetic, the unfiltered, and the undeniable. Join me as I race the clock with old and new friends talking mutants, mess, meaning, and much, much more. This is Immortal X of Words. Which has the least? Wow. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> somebody's going to get mad at me. I Okay, well, it's it's basically like it's a bounce between what has been done and what can be done because like what people have like had a lot of stories. Um, yeah. You know, that's obviously how many more stories are there left to tell? Um, so, you know, I could probably get away with saying like, oh, Cyclops, we've now mapped thoroughly um, as opposed to the other four. Uh, but also there's like what can be done with them. And I, you know, I feel like there's, there's still a lot you can do with Cyclops. Um, there's obviously a lot you can do with Jean, um, especially now that she's dead again. That, that tends to be, as, as we're seeing in the Jean, Jean Grey miniseries, you know, there's a lot of, even when she's dead, there's a lot you can do. Yeah. Um, the, I think, I'm probably going to say Warren. I think I'm going to say Warren just because he's sort of, I know, I know he's got fans. Oh, he's got, he does have a lot of potential. I think, um, out of those five, uh, see, having said that, I'm immediately thinking of Warren stories. But I'm going to stick with my original answer. I'm going to stick with my original answer and say one just because I think at the present moment he is not actively involved. Yeah, he's he's the least actively involved in like some some stuff that is hitting the fan like right now at this second unless i'm completely missing unless i've totally no. forgotten something um, he just popped up in dark x-men there it is he's in the dark x-men of course he is um wow but that doesn't no but that's okay maybe look well he's got, he's got the Ar- he's got the archangel oh. thing he's got the warren stuff he's got the archangel stuff now the archangel yeah. stuff's being explored in the dark x-men i believe um yeah. that's still I'm gonna stick with Warren. By Warren with hair, the least writing pretension. By a nose hair, by a nose hair, Warren. But like they've all got a lot. So unfortunately, this is what happens when your powers are being a pigeon. Yeah, maybe it's Beast. I don't know. I feel like I feel like Beast's kind of in a really good spot at the minute. Camp and evil. Well, he's he's super evil, and he's like right in the middle of like his story yeah um so it's think, it's a bad time to like, say that do you think there's only like one way that marvel treats super intelligence so far the only people who are super intelligent and not a raging sociopath is moon girl and the seeds of it are already in Valeria richards yeah that's, like, that's, that's kind of what makes Valeria fun 
is that she's going to grow up to be, if not a supervillain, at least quite a sort of amoral anti-hero character. I think I think that's yeah. fun in like a, a five-year-old or whatever she is. I think um, there's an interesting like, like triangle between Amadeus, Lunella, and um, uh, and Valeria as like tomorrow's geniuses. Yeah, that's. I I think that's fun. I think it's good that there's so many like genius kids in Marvel because you know Reed Reed's a bit of a dick. Um, back in the day, Stanley did him no favors by making him the hero of the Fantastic Four. Like. That that created a, a psychic debt, a kind of karmic debt that he's been like repaying ever since. That he kind of went into space, turned turned all of his friends into monstrous superpowered weirdos, crashed the ship, and his first thing is to go, I would love it if you all called me Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> I would love that. Ben is like there and like, you know, looking like oatmeal. God, like, oh my God, I'll never be human again. Right, we'll get back to that, Ben. I'm not a human anymore. I'm what Sue called me. I'm a thick. We're going to get back to that, Ben, but I would really love it if you all called me Mr. Fantastic. Um, and it's like, and it's, you, he's, he's been paying. He's been paying for that moment of ego like ever since his entire, his entire picture life. Yeah. Blue Marvel, I'm very fond of. As everybody knows, and as a as a super genius, um, I I I like him because he's sort of he's quite chill. He doesn't really kind of one of the advantages of being off the page a lot is is that you're never like you're never yeah. creating. You know, you're never joining in with like I don't know the latest kind of civil war stuff or. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's you it's the, like you got the privilege of you got you got the benefit of anonymity. You're off doing something. People assume it's good. A little bit, yeah, yeah. It's like, um, but I, every time I bring him in, I always kind of try to like make sure he's getting something done. Um, but also, he's got like. But at, at the risk of this becoming a Reed Richards episode, which. Spiritually, I'm spiritually I'm against. I'm, I'm I um have not been keeping up with poor old Yancey Street. Couldn't couldn't possibly comment on um. <laughs> yeah. FF. No, it's it's like I've I've not been I've not been keeping up with um, current FF as well as I should have. Um, no, that's the, that's totally fine. for the for the simple reason that I'm doing like four books in four different offices, and the FF isn't one of them. So unless 100%. the unless the FF guest star. Um, which eventually they will, and eventually I'll, I'll spend a happy weekend catching up with everything Ron's been doing. Yeah. Um, but like, um, I keep up. Funny enough, I keep up with Doctor Doom. I've read, I've read the Doctor Doom issues because I'm always, I'm always guest starring Doctor Doom. And I'll say this to you right here: that's because Doctor Doom is a bad bitch. <laughs> he, <is. laughs> he knows exactly what he's there for. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. Yes, I'm wearing fur. Don't mind it. I mean, he hunted that animal himself. He hunted that animal himself. You know, you absolutely know he did. He, he's like... 100%. He, w- he would not deign to wear, like, fur that somebody else had, like... Uh, he probably, like, genetically engineered the mink. Probably. For, like, extra probably. furry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you imagine him trading money for a pre-made mink? 
No. He'd make it himself. It's like the the. I mean, this is this is something I have a lot of fun with Doctor Doom is, is that he's he thinks he's the smartest man in the world, but he also believes that he's the world's greatest artist, writer, and composer. Yes. Yes. Oh, I saw that in the in the Venom thing when he walked yeah, through was, Kang's it was, halls. It was so much fun where he's like really pissed at Kang for like not like <laughs> not plundering his tomb. It's like, it's like that is a snub. Was I not buried with any of my amazing paintings? <laughs> All right, so welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Immortal X of Words. You know what this is. We're going to talk about mutants. We're going to make it quick. I am Ashley. Hello. Thank oh. you for taking the time to chat with us again today. I have with me Al Ewing, who is writer of Immortal Thor, Venom, X-Men Red, and now Avengers Inc., your faves, fave. Hi, Al. Say hi. Hello, hi. Um, thank you for thank you for having me on again. Anytime. It's good to have you back. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, I underst- understand there are questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. So the first thing hey. um, when I speak to when I speak to writers, I I like to do a little segment called "Give Them Their Flowers," uh, oh. where I head over to Patreon and I talk to some people who really like your writing, and I ask them uh, to ask you questions and tell you nice things. How's that sound? Thank you very much. No, that sounds that sounds very good. I was um, I was saying before we started recording that it's um, you know it's really nice to, to to kind of to hear. Yeah. So first one is from Septon Pappy, uh, who's a, is Abella, who's lovely, and Abella says, "Would love to hear my king talk about how he <laughs> conceptualizes queerness and writing queerness into his stories, which we've seen quite a bit of across all of his books." Um, this would probably have been a harder question before I came out. Um, but I mean, really, I was, I was just putting myself in the work like a lot. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much where it all came from. And then eventually I was just like, well, I seem to be putting this in the work a lot. And like, um, you know, thinking, thinking about it a lot, but it's, I don't know how do I, how do I conceptualize it? Um, I mean, obviously, on some level, I I think of it as writing queer characters, but it's like it's writing characters, and then it interests me and excites me, and is sort of you know a lot of the times makes me more get along with them more if if those characters are then queer. Um, yeah, and it's like, and that it's it's kind of as basic as that, really. Uh, I just sort of like somebody like um, you know, if if I if I write a, a a big porcupine guy to kind of fight Storm in one scene, and then I think, oh well, let's bring him back. Oh, I I want to make him. Interesting. How do I make him interesting? How do I make him like emotionally accessible? How do I make him affect him? Let's have him, let's have him like, let's get into his head. Let's get into his heart. Let's, you know, and then it just seemed very natural that he's quit. And it's like, I, I he was one of the first, like, he was one of the first, I thought, so I th- I wanted to direct you to a couple of things that I noticed that I almost made questions and episodes about. Right. Um, and the first one was the 
ethical doming setup between John Ironfire and the White Sword. And... We do actually mention that um, in that we kind of touch on it slightly, um, but short answer is White Sword never asked anything that wasn't military service. Now, is that ethically dubious? Eh, kind of, if somebody is sort of like magically loyal to you, um, and like, and then you're asking them to fight, uh, that's not cool. Um, but yeah, it was like, I, I don't know, we kind of draw because it's like. Were we right to read a love story in that? People thought of that? Well, because, all right, so we there was a lot of people who saw a love story there because when yeah. we went back into Akara, one of the first, well, one of the little sideways scenes was John and the White Sword sitting with their feet yeah, in the but... water next to each other. And then when it said that he was the first person that he brought back, a lot of people thought that that was a romance situation. <sighs> They're not. They're not wrong. Basically, what what that was was I sort of wrote. Um, I wrote this kind of quite sort of quite a tender thing between them, mm. and then like that was drawn. Obviously, since um, uh, Jack Post started uh, drawing, certainly. Certainly, from X Men Eleven onwards, um, John Onfar is just very hot, um, <laughs> and it's like, and I, I don't know. I kind of lent into that a little bit when I was writing it, and it, but it was sort of like um, it didn't occur to me that there had been, you know, sexy times while while John was sort of dead. In that, like, the kind of... The White Sword sort of bringing people back to serve under him is like a kind of... They're not quite... I was sort of taking this from, like, the Doug Ramsey thing. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, he's able to release people from that obligation. Um, and it's like, well, why doesn't he release everybody immediately? And it's like, because once he does, he can't heal them again. Um, but like, so there's an element of wanting to keep John kind of by his side and keep him alive and keep him, you know, in this immortal state, but like, it kind of, I guess it just didn't occur to me because I, you know, I, I didn't think the white sword was that kind of guy and I didn't think John would put up with him being that kind of guy and also would just immediately like drop a bomb on the entire story like yeah. suddenly the entire story would have to be about that yeah so it, it kind of didn't occur to me and this is oh. this is an example of something where like i need to be looking at stuff from kind of all angles and you know and i think it was a screw up on my part that i like didn't I didn't see this as a possibility that like oh no no no, no. i think this i think it was a conflation of kind of terminally online stuff and also art, because as soon as the, the white sword dropped, people were like, sexy. Yeah, I mean, he does look so sexy. 
Like, people were waiting to put like some sort of love story into his orbit from the minute he dropped. When I saw people were saying that, I thought, well, I'd better, and this is a conversation that's coming up, I'd, I'd better make it clear that, like, you know, while it is, you know, it's untoward in general to be like bringing people back from the dead to fight in your eternal army. 100%. Um, you know, he, he has not, if there's a line between that and bringing people back from the dead um, to have sex with them, he has not crossed that line. Yes. Uh, but it did feel like... Because there's a power imbalance. He's the general. As long as he's the general and John is one of his soldiers, that is a power imbalance. 100%. Uh, and I think you were really clear about making sure that John is clearly consenting in every panel to everything that has happened. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like when... When White, when White Sword releases John from the obligation, it's like, you are no longer my soldier. You know, mm. you're out. You're, it's This is your honourable discharge. Now get this sword away from you. Um, and we kind of really like... Um, and we lean on that a bit. In And I, I can't give like the particulars of the conversation because um, it's... It, that conversation is kind of instigated by certain spoilery events, okay. which I don't want to spoil. But like, um, and you know, people who've read X Men, X Men Red Fifteen, will know that you know the White Sword has now turned up. So, yes, um, he's obviously going to be part of the conversation. But like, um, yeah, when when that conversation happened, I try to make it clear that it's like the White Sword and his hundreds that's like a military service thing that's like a kind of an army i don't know i haven't answered the question of whether any of the white swords hundred can say i would like to stop being the hundred now yeah whether they would think that, of was, that that is actually a big thing that i think that answered because when i watched john and when i watched john leave the thrall I was waiting to see whether there would be some added sense of agency or awareness. And I like the fact that when the thrall came up, he wasn't a different person. So it's not like, you know, there are some mind control situations where even the connection changes the person's will. Yeah. So as soon as you they're under your thrall, they want to be under your thrall. And so you can't really take anything they say while they're under it as testament. But the fact that it comes off and John is still like, nope, I was as committed before. Yeah, he's still committed. I think I think there's like a, a dreamlike element to it because if you're fighting for a thousand years and you die and you're dying every day and you're brought back to life day and you're fighting for a thousand years, if you're kind of like fully conscious of the pain of that, um, there's an element of like, is that something even on Araco? Is that something you want your soldiers to experience? Or is that something you want to spare them? Um, so it's like there's an anesthetic element. Okay. Maybe. Uh, so, but uh, this is something that we haven't made like super clear. I mean, another writer could come along and go like, no, it works exactly like this. <laughs> well, there is, to be honest, there's a huge thing about, in my mind, at least, about healing. And yeah. um, it, it was one of the things, it felt weirdly, Heroes. Do you remember the TV show Heroes? Not at all. I um, it's another okay. one that I, I didn't, uh, I didn't catch. 
Well, there's a healer. There's a the cheerleader is the healer in it, and at one point right. she cuts off her toe, and she just winces. And I remember thinking that if you can heal, is our sense of pain set up the way it is only to warn us of death? So, do we experience pain in the way and conceive of it in the way that we do because it's meant to warn us about death? And once death stops being a possibility, does pain stop being? Pain is just like an irritant. Yeah. Like maybe it's just like a sunburn or like something. I mean, it- it's like, um, you know, we don't, we don't really know like how it works. We know that it's a healing gift. Um, and like, it's, it's, it's like a mega healing. It's, it's healing to the extent that, you know, death stops being a thing. Um, but like, yeah, it's it's a really kind of um, yeah. I don't know. I, I I think it is quite a chewy. It's quite a chewy situation. It's not yeah. something that I think should be sort of um, easily kind of digested. But yeah. at the same time, there were sort of implications that I wasn't intending and don't really want in the mix. <laughs> Fair play, and we'll see if that's the case or not. We'll see if I've managed to put pay to those implications, or if there are people who are just like, "No, that doesn't that doesn't cover it for me." Okay, and you know, like I say, I'm I'm eventually I will be leaving these characters in the hands of other writers, and if those other writers want to write something where the White Sword turns out to be even more evil than just like, okay, I'm going to bring you back from the dead, but now you've got to find my army prophet. Mm. You know, somebody with healing powers should ask him, have you ever tried being a free at the point of delivery health service? Why are you, uh, why are you charging? Why are you charging for health service? Okay, I'm going to move us on to our next question, which is from Alexandra T. And Alexandra says, as a white male writer who's often credited as being a good steward of black women, notably Storm and Monica, uh, what has Mr. Ewing learned from or about black women in his real life that informs how he thinks about these characters and how they behave. Can he think of examples of times he's written one of these characters and had to stop and say, "Mm, she would respond to this differently as a black woman? How does that impact the stories he tells? I mean, I I guess I try to avoid falling into cliches, stereotypes, cliches, because one thing thing I try to keep a weather eye on is that I I have a tendency to write people as very competent, tough in the face of adversities. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like something that has been pointed out once or twice is that there's a sort of a vision of black women as like eternally strong in the face of stuff. And kind of it's yeah. almost their job to be strong in the face of stuff and it's their job to take charge of matters and it's like additional emotional labor. Hmm. I, I don't know if I'm doing that particular complaint justice. Um, yeah. So no, there is there is a massive strong black woman trope. Yeah, that, that kind of I think thing uh, where it's like yeah. It's almost like some characters are allowed to be allowed to be vulnerable, they're allowed to yeah. struggle with things they're allowed to receive re- support and i think the the thing that the strong black women trope can do on top of creating characters that are a constantly suffering mm. b saving everybody and in service to everyone 
they also don't often get a lot of empathy or support because it's almost like their strength is inherent. So you don't have to feel for them. You don't have to connect with them emotionally. You don't have to want to support them. or All of the softness sort of mm. leaves. And so, yeah, I totally hear what you're talking about. It's tricky because I don't give a lot of people time for softness in general. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I'm kind of like aware that very few people have have time for romance there's always something happening mm. if, if you kind of go back and look over um, my stuff a lot of a lot of what happens is that like relationships are like alluded to they happen in the yeah. background they occasionally surface Solemn's one Kovacs one uh, even between Tarn and Tarn and Iska which we know happened but so far yeah yeah know. it's it's basically like we we didn't get a chance to properly see it. It was just, it was almost built out of her reaction to his death. The way that kind of came on the page, I was like, I had a look at the art and I was like, there's something else here. So the art, when you see the art, that informs the story as you write it. Yeah, yeah, no, it has to, because um, I do a dialogue pass. And with that Iska moment, originally I didn't have her react so strongly, but just seeing the art was just like, she was in some real emotional pain, and I dulled the dialogue up a little to match the strength of the emotion in the art. When I came to write that long data page, it was like the history of Iska. It was like, do I want to actually make them a thing? And yeah, I think I do. Even if it's just mm. to just kind of emphasize the length of time that this was going on. Iska was with Tarn and, and the Summoners and the rest for like thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, they were her people for longer than Genesis was. I don't know. I feel like there's there's so much there's so much with Iska that's just like I've kind of had to sideline her a little bit in the Genesis world because yeah, I think her journey now involves not taking a side. Um, yes. To have her... and to be honest, I mean, because you're you're talking about having to sideline Iska, but I think that the crux of this question is that right now you're writing a book where the two main leads are black women. And you're talking about the third black woman who's also in the mix, who now isn't getting as much play. And I would like to emphasize to you that that is not a typical situation that you get to talk about in comics. Yeah, yeah. You bring black women to the fore like this and you manage to tell t stories of significantly different black women in terms of motivation, but also in terms of how they react to things, what their, what their drives are and who they are. I mean, um, I'm... I'm it's, I'm glad it's working out. Um, I do get very used to thinking in terms of like, you know, Storm and Genesis and Iska without taking that step back. I, I worry a little with, with Genesis that she's almost too villainous. She's a very harsh person. And I, I, I agree. I agree. I spoke about this in a conversation uh, that I had on a friend's podcast the other day. So you imagine a table, the less legs a table has, is yep. the more weight that is having to be carried by individual yeah, bodies. Yeah. I think the proliferation of black characters leaves space for black complexity because not every character has to be all things to all people. So you can have... If you're hearing this, you've reached the end of the Extra Words preview. To hear this full episode and a whole heap of other behind-the-scenes stuff, head over to Patreon and join us on The Quiet Council. That's patreon.com forward slash X of Words. We'll see you over there.
choke someone I feel inside 